It's been a real joy uh, to be a part of uh, the launch of Renewal Mainline. And uh, it's been great also to get to know uh, lots of you from uh, West Philly and others who are um, completely new. And if we haven't gotten to know you yet, um, you know, please, please do say hi. Um, love to get to know you more. Um, I will confess, however, that uh, my life has gotten harder in one way because of this merger. Um, the average age of the guys playing basketball has been cut in half, and the skill level may have doubled. Uh, so please know that as I preach that uh, after yesterday's basketball, I can hardly move. <laughs> uh, some of you know uh, a little bit about our family, my wife Pearl, we have uh, five children. Uh, I always wanted to be prolific at something. And having so many uh, children has uh, made uh, my wife and, and me uh, near professional level children's book readers. And I still remember uh, bouncing uh, our first child, Hannah, uh, on my knee uh, to reading a book together to the rhythm of, Jonah was a man who believed in God. God called Jonah to the city of Nineveh. But Jonah disobeyed. Now, some children's Bible stories can be very helpful, others not much, so much so. Uh, and many of the children's stories about Jonah and the marine biological embellishment of the big whale, uh, no doubt much more commonly heard from 1851 onward after the publishing of Moby Dick, uh, are not so helpful. And, uh, you know, the telling of Jonah's story um, often includes elements about how Jonah was a special man with a special job to go to an especially bad city filled with especially bad people. And he especially did not want to go there because it was scary to go to such a bad place with such bad people. And after some hiding and seeking, because Children, remember, you can't hide from God. Jonah obeyed and, and went to the city of Nineveh, and, and they believed God. And yay, Jonah's a hero. And that's a common theme of children's Bible stories, right? The prophets are heroes. Uh, kings are heroes, especially little King David. The apostles are heroes. So little boys and little girls, be a hero a good little Christian hero. Now, some of the parents are thinking, honey, we need to throw out all those Christian storybooks. But you actually don't have to. Uh, they can be redeemed. And here's how you correct all those colorful, uh, foamy, sticky, but misguided books. Talk with your kids. Talk with your kids about how God is the hero of that story and every story. And today we're looking at Jonah chapter 4, which is the climax of the book. Um, in, in fact, we, we don't even get any reason for Jonah's disobedience and attempted escape from God until chapter 4. Um, all we see is, you know, chapter 1, uh, God asking Jonah to do something, uh, to preach against the city of Nineveh because of its weak, uh, wickedness. And that sounds like a pretty reasonable request that God could make of a prophet. Um, we see that Jonah runs off for dear life. 
without any explanation, uh, the big fish swallows Jonah until he dramatically vomits him out. Then in chapter 3, uh, Jonah obeys, the people and the king repent and believe God, and God has compassion on the Assyrians and doesn't destroy them. Cut, print, that's a wrap. And that's pretty much how children's Bible story books have treated Jonah. And if we're honest, that's pretty close to how many of us have treated Jonah as well, as if chapter 4 didn't exist. Find me a children's book on Jonah that includes chapter 4. Uh, but it does exist, and what we have here is really a stark contrast between who is one who is not the hero, Jonah, and one who is God. On the one hand, we have Jonah and Jonah's anger. On the other, we have the God who is concerned, a God of compassion. Uh, God's compassion leads to God's command for Jonah to speak a message of salvation. And Jonah's utter lack of compassion leads to his disobedience to God's command. Uh, now, we have a set of facts here that are not disputed either by God or by Jonah. Uh, first of all, both agree, rightly, that Nineveh is a wicked place with wicked people. Second, uh, the fact that God is mighty enough to save is not disputed. Jonah knows that. He has seen that toward Israel. He has experienced that personally on a number of levels, including his salvation from the mouth of the great fish. And third, both God and Jonah know that God has the compassion to save. Uh, Jonah's confession about this in verse 2 is a beautiful one. You are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. But his next confession in verse 3 is an ugly one. This beautiful confession of worship in verse 2 about the character of God becomes the root of complaint and condemnation. Oh, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah wants God to be quicker to anger and slower to love and compassion toward the Ninevites. So we have a God of compassion and a prophet of condemnation and anger. In verse 1, we read that God's compassion on the Ninevites displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. More literally, we could translate the Hebrew as, it made him boiling mad. And to him, it, what God had done, was a great evil. In chapter 3, the pagans had just gotten rid of their great evil, the very same word used here. But Jonah now labels God's compassion as evil. Now, before we talk about all kinds of terrible things about Jonah, and rightly so, I want to voice uh, a note of encouragement about him and about us as well, um, especially if you feel a little bit like Jonah, as I do. Um, you know, all of these terrible things that we know about Jonah and his anger and even his complaints and condemnation of God, 
and of God's compassion as evil, we come to learn about because of Jonah. He's likely the author of this book, and Jonah doesn't hold back. So I want to give Jonah some credit and appreciation, and also, you know, give thanks to God that it's very possible that God, as the gracious and compassionate God that Jonah complained about, that he showed that same grace and compassion undeservedly to Jonah once again sometime after chapter 4. And perhaps Jonah's heart was changed. And Jonah was, you know, able to relate this whole story with this honest portrayal of his own shameful part and a thankfulness to God's compassion, both to Nineveh and to himself. So if, if, if your identification with Jonah today makes you feel a bit hopeless, um, you know, please find encouragement that God's arm is not too short to use a person like Jonah or like you for his great purposes, nor is his arm too weak to turn around a heart like Jonah. Jonah's or yours. And it was, without a doubt, a very, very hard heart. Jonah, as I said, was boiling mad. Um, anger is incredibly instructive. Anger is incredibly instructive. You know, think about all the kinds of things that it can happen to you that make you mad, like, you know, kind of like, like walking by and getting bumped by someone. It's interesting because in those situations, your reaction often does not happen until you look around and see who did it, right? It's interesting. So it's like you're walking around, you get bummed, you kind of hold off judgment, you turn around and like you see a guy in a Dallas Cowboys jersey, and you're like, right? Or... You get bumped, you turn around, and it's like kind of, kind of an older lady or something. You're like, oh, are you okay? I'm so sorry. Ah. Right? Or like in my household, um, you know, one of the kids will like, you know, see like their stuff like all messed up. And immediately they'll be like, MJ! Blaming their younger brother, right? And then, you know, Pearl says to them, oh, actually... Um, you know, that, that, was, that was the dog. It was Paxson. And then, you know, walking up to the dog. Oh, Paxson. Oh, did you like playing with my things? Oh, I love you. I love you so much. Think about the things that make you angry, the situations, and what is it that makes you more or less angry? You know, or the same example as you're walking by, somebody bumps you, and you turn around, and you find that your reaction is different according to the race of that person who bumped you. What does that say about our hearts? Anger is incredibly instructive. And for Jonah, anger reveals a few things. You know, first of all, most importantly, his anger flowed from a failure to grasp, fully grasp the reality of the depth of the grace of God. You know, God has shown incredible compassion to Jonah in so many ways. Jonah boasts about this to the sailors. He's like, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven. You know, he had experienced the merciful salvation of God and even the salvation from the mouth of the big fish recently. And he was blessed to be a prophet of the living God. And even 
blessed momentarily with the relief of the shade of a vine spread over his head by the very hand of God. And this scene with the vine is very, it's very interesting. It's, it, it shows how incredibly creative God is in his teaching, you know, perhaps very much reminiscent of how Jesus would teach when he walked this earth, right? You know, like using the image of a coin to answer a luring question about taxes or multiplying food for the thousands or cursing a fruitless fig tree that withers from the roots. And this is really kind of a, a comical scene that is presented here. It's, 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 it's a little bit like football on Sundays, you know, it's like Jonah, like, pulls up a chair, and he's expecting his team to lose. And thankfully, we don't know anything about that feeling again here in Philadelphia, do we? But for those of you who are young, that was our life, you know. We were hoping for a miracle, right? You still keep watching. You can't not watch. And Jonah can't not watch because Jonah is fearing what God that God might do what he said he was going to do. But he's still holding out hope for destruction. So he sits there and he waits. And then the hand of God moves and grows this vine over Jonah's head, over Jonah's hot head, literally and figuratively. And again, comically, you know, Jonah's very happy. <laughs> it's like you can picture Jonah on his like stadium seat and he's like drinking a beer and there's a goofy smile on his face, right? Because this unexpected, you know, blessing of shade over his head. And he's sitting there waiting for sulfur to pour down from heaven upon the Ninevites. And Jonah would, you know, cheer and, you know, give people high fives. Says, yeah. But instead, God provided a worm that chews down the vine that God had also provided. And God provides even more, a scorching east wind, a blazing sun. And for a second time, Jonah says he's so angry that he could die. And it's very ironic. Jonah is boiling mad and ready to die from his anger at a God who made him, loved him, saved him, called him, commanded him, and forgave him after his disobedience all because God made others, loved others, desired to save others, and call others, and command others, and forgive others. Jonah finally shows some concern for something perishing other than himself. But pitifully, it's just for a plant, a vine that he neither planted nor cared for, but merely selfishly used for his own comfort. And he's just as angry at God for that, ready to die as Jonah was at God's compassion upon the Ninevites, a people that God made and cared for and to whom he extends the offer of forgiveness. Again, Jonah failed to grasp the reality of the depth of the grace of God. Anger is incredibly instructive. And anger is also incredibly destructive. And it can twist our minds and our hearts so that we really can't grasp reality clearly. And this was true for Jonah and the vine. Um, personally, it's very ironic for me to, to preach on this chapter about Jonah because I've always identified very much with him. Um, some of you may know a little bit about my story and um, our mission's calling. Uh, my father's name was not always Oh Sung-gyu, a Korean name. 
as a child growing up uh, during the Japanese occupation of Korea, he was born with the name Matsuyama Hideo, a Japanese name. And if he used his Korean name or spoke Korean, he would be beaten. And then God later called me, his son, to serve as a missionary upon, uh, among the people that he was taught to hate. And there is perhaps good reason, humanly speaking, uh, to hate the Japanese. You know, we talk about the horrors of the, uh, the Holocaust, where Nazi Germany uh, killed six million Jews. According to historian Chalmers Johnson, as many as 30 million Filipinos, Vietnamese, Cambodians, Chinese, Koreans, and others were killed. There was a Holocaust in Asia, but no one seems to have even noticed. Imperial Japanese scientists tested various chemical and biological weapons, such as bubonic plague, anthrax on human victims. Women were impregnated by soldiers and doctors, their bellies sliced open, their babies removed and tested upon, leading to their death. Nazi scientists who visited Japanese medical experimentation facilities vomited from the horror of what they saw. 200,000 Korean women were forced to be sex slaves of the Japanese Imperial Army. They are known today euphemistically as the comfort women. It should come as no surprise then that the question most often asked about, uh, to us about our mission work is, you know, why Japan? And, you know, Korean people would ask us that. Japanese people would ask us that. Americans, you know, of all the places in the world, why would a Korean person choose Japan? And the answer that I often gave is quite simply, Jesus said, love your enemies. Uh, as many of you know, um, I started a ministry in Japan, uh, in Nagoya, called CBI, CBI Japan. We also founded Christ Bible Seminary, which by God's grace has become one of the largest seminaries in Japan. Uh, the Lord provided an amazing downtown ministry center for us, just a five-minute walk from Nagoya Station, uh, at a $19 million discount. But I'm no hero. Uh, God did this work despite me. I went to Japan with a conviction to love an unreached people, and also with a personal conviction to very practically love my enemies. Uh, many applauded my convictions, um, but I also went to Japan as a self-righteous missionary. With a latent bitterness toward the people that the Lord had called me to love. Uh, my PhD dissertation at Penn focused on the Japanese occupation of Korea. Uh, it, was, it was a torturous process, and my bitterness, I think, was really inflamed, and my self-righteousness became just uglier and uglier. And as a leader of a seminary, there was a danger of turning unrighteous young people into self-righteous leaders, of taking younger prodigal sons and training them to be self-righteous older brothers. Uh, but the Lord was incredibly patient and gracious with me, um, and so were my beloved Japanese brothers and sisters. Now, a true turning point uh, for me personally was the confession of my self-righteousness at the 2009 Urbana Mission Conference in front of 18,000 people. So it won't surprise you that I've often felt in my missionary work that I was like Jonah, uh, the reluctant prophet. But I think it became clearer and clearer to me over the years that I wasn't just a reluctant prophet, but I was, again, like Jonah, a self-righteous prophet. But I want the flaws of Jonah and, and even my own flaws uh, to, to, to be an encouragement to us all to, 
today as we remember the God who overcomes flawed servants. If God can use Jonah, he can use you and he can use me. So again, we have Jonah sitting there in his stadium seat, holding his beer uh, with a front row seat, you know, waving some sign that says, you know, no mercy to the Ninevites or something. You know, he's hoping to see blood. Jonah the prophet has become a spectator. He did his minimal obedience, if you can even call it that. He barely walks himself into the city. He preaches what may have been a partial message. For all we know, he, he may have even just mumbled it as well. His was probably the shortest sermon ever delivered. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And yet it had possibly the greatest fruit from a single sermon that the world had ever seen. God works despite us. God works, and he can work through you. As this is a kind of a global mission Sunday, and a, as I'm a missionary, I want to start with the priority of uh, sending missionaries to the front lines, especially toward reaching uh, the unreached peoples of the world. Um, I serve as global executive director and CEO of the Lausanne Movement. Uh, we did the kind of that Lausanne prayer before. Uh, the Lausanne Movement is a global movement of about 25,000 leaders of the global church in every nation on earth. And the mission of the Lausanne Movement is to connect influencers and ideas for global mission. And God has used Lausanne in a, in a beautiful way, a be beautifully unique way. Um, the connecting of influencers really began um, through the friendships of Billy Graham, our founder. Uh, Billy actually will turn uh, 99 on Tuesday. And I asked Billy a few years ago, why did you start Lausanne? And he said, I, I traveled the whole world and I met so many wonderful leaders, but I found they didn't know each other. So in 1974, the first Lausanne Congress was held in Lausanne, Switzerland. That's where we get our name from with 2,700 leaders from 150 nations gathered in, in what Time Magazine described as a formidable forum, possibly the widest ranging meeting of Christians ever held. In 1989 in Manila, Philippines, a second Lausanne Congress was held, and then in 2010, the third Lausanne Congress was held in Cape Town, South Africa, uh, with 4,000 leaders gathered from 200 nations. It was the largest and most globally representative gathering of Christian leaders in the 2,000-year history of the church. And when these influencers are brought together, and when the spirit is at work, you know, ideas are inspired. And Lausanne has helped to shape uh, global mission strategy for the last 43 years with ideas like the 1040 window, business as mission, diaspora, orality. Probably, though, the most game-changing idea inspired uh, was UPGs, or unreached people groups. So in the late 1960s and then early 1970s, the global church was in a really exciting season. There, were, there was now a Christian in every single nation on earth. And this was a cause for celebration. And some even began to believe that the Great Commission was finished. It was fulfilled. But at the first Lausanne Congress, Dr. Ralph Winter put out a call for the global church to refocus her mission and resources to a people group strategy. When the Bible talks about the gospel going, to, going forth to every nation, it's not referring to modern political nation states. 
The biblical Greek word is ethne, and it's referring to distinct cultural ethno-linguistic peoples who affiliate based on uh, religion or region or uh, uh, cultural ties, physical ties. Uh, for example, in Nigeria alone, there are 544 people groups. Overall, there are about 16,000 people groups in the whole world. More than 6,000 of them are considered unreached meaning there's no indigenous group of believers capable of sharing the gospel without the support of missionaries. Usually we consider a people group to be unreached until 2% of the population are followers of Jesus Christ. So unless missionaries are sent, there will be no gospel witness. For some UPGs are actually UUPGs, unengaged, unreached people groups, meaning that there's not a single church, not a single organization, not a single missionary to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So the Sheikh people of Bangladesh are the largest unreached people group in the world. The second largest unreached people group in the world are the Japanese. The third, the next three actually are all in India. And so these three nations, these three largest unreached people groups should be a strategic focus for our global missions. So where else can we focus our mission strategy? Uh, first of all, I believe that um, we can and we should target countries with the tiniest percentage of Christians as well. Do you know what they are? Maldives, Morocco, Yemen, Afghanistan, Somalia. So Maldives at, point, at 0.17% down to Somalia at 0.01%. Uh, secondly, we can and we should target countries with the most unreached individuals. So 75% of all the unreached individuals on earth live in just 10 nations. India, Pakistan, China, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Japan, Iran, Turkey, Thailand, and Nepal. It's a great area for us to focus for global missions. Thirdly, we can and we should target the countries with the largest numbers of unreached people groups. So that would be India. India has more than one-third of all the unreached people groups in the world, India alone. And then China, Pakistan, Nepal, and Bangladesh. God is passionately compassionate toward these people. Not just 120,000 people like Nineveh, but nearly 3 billion people who have little to no opportunity to hear the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. Billions who will not hear unless missionaries are sent. Now, this is a calling of the church, our honor. And as much as Renewal Church considers itself to be a part of the universal church of Jesus Christ, this is our mission as well. I'm so thankful for the, uh, the mission uh, support from Renewal of missionaries in different places around the world. So thankful for your support and prayers for our family over so many years. We have felt your love as one of the sweetest expressions of being a part of the body of Jesus Christ. So we're very, very thankful. And we long for more missionaries to be raised up and sent out. And you know, if you have any interest, any, any questions, any conviction to learn more, explore more, um, ask questions, you know, I, I would love to talk with you. So please let me know. So besides sending missionaries, what are some of the domestic and local opportunities for gospel outreach, specifically to the unreached? Uh, the Lausanne movement often talks about um, calling the whole church to bring the whole gospel to the whole world. Um, if you consider yourself to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ, 
you are a part of that whole church who is called to bring the gospel to the whole world. To be a part of the church, whether local or universal, is to be involved in her mission. How can you be involved in the mission of the global church of Christ and locally here with Renewal? Um, It's a really important question for you individually to consider. Uh, To be a part of Renewal Church is, is not only to attend worship, but it's to be involved in her mission locally and also to the world. You know, what is one way that you can be involved in Renewal's local outreach? Um, There are so many opportunities, so nearby. Um, For example, there are more than 4 million students from nations around the world who study in other nations, and about 1 million of them study here in the United States. This is a huge missions opportunity in our backyard that is largely ignored or neglected by most churches. More than 3,600 students from Bangladesh study in the United States. They're the largest unreached people group in the world. We can, they can, be, we can reach them. We can have contact with them. More than 18,000 students come from Japan, the second largest unreached people group in the world. 42,000 students are here from Saudi Arabia. More than 90,000 from India. Globally, international student populations will double by 2025. And that brings us to a related strategy and opportunity of diaspora. Um, Lausanne has given a lot of attention to this concept and strategy of global diaspora. More than 230 million people who live outside of the country of their birth. Uh, In a recent Lausanne article, uh, there was a quote saying, The sovereign God of history is sending and superintending one of the most massive evangelistic opportunities in world mission history. Through intentional global scattering, the Holy Spirit is not only creating an unprecedented receptivity among people living beyond their borders, but also is dispersing evangelistic workers through creative, unexpected means. So if indeed this is a massive missional orchestration by God, and this is indeed one of the most massive mission opportunities in world mission history, you know, how can we respond? How can we respond individually? How do we respond as a church? I think for most strategies, there's a kind of a structural component, and also there's an individual intentionality component. Um, There's a need for ministries, for churches, organizations to specifically research and organize around the particular opportunities that the Lord has provided them. There's a need for demographic study, Um, You know, looking particularly at the international student populations locally from the largest unreached nations, from the least evangelized people groups, that would certainly include those from Bangladesh, Japan, those countries with the most unevangelized people like China, India, Turkey, Indonesia, but then maybe even some really fine targeting of individuals from Maldives, Morocco, Yemen, Afghanistan, Somalia. There may only be a handful of individuals from some of these countries. But if they can be loved, if they can be reached for Christ, it could be like unlocking this incredibly difficult door to open for the gospel. There are 104 colleges in Philly, and especially you college students, you have unbelievable opportunity to be friends with these other students. According to uh, Theology Working Group former chair, um, current Asbury Seminary president, Tim Tennant, he said, 86% of the immigrant population in North America are likely to either be Christians or become Christians. 
that's far above the national average. The immigrant population actually presents the greatest hope for Christian renewal in North America. This group that we want to keep out is actually the group that we most need for spiritual transformation. We shouldn't see this as something that threatens us. We should see this as a wonderful opportunity. Can we, as Renewal, pray about a strategy for reaching immigrants? Let's not miss out on one of the best church growth strategies today. Uh, did you know that the majority of convenience store owners in New York City are Yemenis? Yemen is a very difficult place to be a missionary. I have a family member who served there for years. Missionaries have been kicked, all of the missionaries have been kicked out from Yemen. Believers are imprisoned in Yemen. We should send, send missionaries to Yemen. But we can also easily engage with Yemenis in New York City or Oakland, California or Dearborn, Michigan convenience stores. How convenient. So organizationally, strategically thinking, but also intentionality individually. You know, if you were to approach a typical individual who looks like a typical individual in your neighborhood at Starbucks and strike up a conversation about your faith, you know, they might report you to the police. But if you hear an individual speaking a different language or wearing different clothing or reading a different scripture and, and we're to say hello and ask, you know, oh, where are you from? And just offer a friendly hello and, 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 and welcome and offer to help. I'm really sure you would find a positive response two out of every three times. Saudi Arabia is a very difficult place to be a missionary. We should send missionaries to Saudi Arabia. But we should also reach out to the 42,000 students from Saudi Arabia studying in America. If you run into a Muslim student in America, they are most likely Saudi. These opportunities are unprecedented, unprecedented. Imagine if each person in our church every year just met two people, two people this way, it would transform our ministry. It would transform what our church looks like. We would be playing a very important role in the global spread of the gospel and even in reaching unreached peoples or unevangelized peoples. Uh, very quickly on the refugee crisis. I was in the Middle East a few years ago with a Syrian leader, and he told me that Syria had a population of 22 million people. Had. 14 million of them have been displaced. Millions have fled to Europe. At one point, America had actually only accepted a few thousand. Germany alone accepted a few thousand every single day. I pray that the Lord might open up an opportunity for America to accept more refugees and for the American church to be challenged to reach and love them. They are desperate. They are homesick, confused. They don't know the language. They don't know what to do. But you never know what God might want to do, what he might want to do through us, through you. At a Lausanne Diaspora Forum in Manila, one friend shared about ministering among an ethnic group in West Africa known for their sorcery. Um, he had to be, uh, leave the country because of medical issues, um, and during the entire time with this West African people group, they never met a single Christian. There's no church among these people. And the missionary ends up in New York City, where he meets someone from the very same ethnic group. He was so excited. And he was even more excited to find out that this West African man, who had uh, been from a Muslim background, uh, became, was a follower of Christ, the first one he had ever met. 
That man fled to New York because his people had been trying to kill him for his faith for 22 years. And the man said to the missionary, it's a miracle I met you today because for all these years I felt called to be an evangelist to my people, but I've never known how. And the missionary said, I I know, it's a miracle because for all these years I've wanted to see that first church planted among your people, but I didn't know how I could be a part The first time they went back together to share the gospel, uh, they shared with over 100 people. And today there are now 40 believers in the village, and several churches have been started. And it all started with a friendship between a missionary and a West African man, both stuck in New York City. In a city like Philly, we're literally surrounded by opportunities to show compassion, especially to aliens and strangers from foreign lands. And your attitude toward them may range anywhere from, you know, eager to connect to apathy or complete ignorance to annoyance or outright contempt. But I think for all of us, no doubt, Jonah is instructive. Jonah wants God to be slow to anger and quick to love and compassion for himself and for his own people only. I think in some sense, aren't we all that way? As I mentioned earlier, God had shown incredible compassion toward Jonah, and that included the circumstances of his birth as a Hebrew. But Jonah failed to receive that unique blessing with a heart of thanksgiving and a life that is properly responsive to that blessing. You know, one of the wonderful dynamics of the gospel, of the good news blessing, is that it is not a zero-sum gain. It is not limited in quantity. We do not have less blessing and less of the gospel if we share it with others, if we give it away. We actually have more. We have a deeper understanding of the gospel. And as we give it away, we actually have more of it. You do not need to be conservative with your sharing of the blessing of the gospel. We should be liberal with it. And our lives should be responsive to a recognition of the blessedness of our circumstances. And rather than kind of looking at our own blessed circumstances and then the unfortunate circumstances of others who are without Christ and saying, thank God I'm not you, we need to recognize that our circumstances are by the grace of God alone. Grace and mercy. And we need to pray for the mercy to avoid the temptations of the blessedness of our circumstances and taking them for granted. Have you ever considered for a moment the absolute mercy and blessedness that you were born into your circumstance? You could just as easily have been born in the slums of Bangladesh or as the son of a Shinto priest in Nagoya, Japan. And if you had been born in the slums of Bangladesh or as the son of a Shinto priest or as a Ninevite, how would you want the people in this room to respond. Uh, Let's bow in prayer. I want to lead us in uh, three 
prayers, uh, three areas. First, in confession and repentance. And I want to invite us all to spend time confessing ways that our hearts are like Jonah's, uh, whether in self-righteousness, self-centeredness, uh, lack of thanksgiving, or maybe a disobedience, or anger, even hatred toward others who need mercy and compassion. And just encourage you to just give, pour your heart out to God, confess your sins, and to seek forgiveness from this gracious God who is full of love and mercy and compassion. So let's pray first in confession and repentance. Let's pray.